God, we come to you, and oh Lord, we are in desperate need of you. Uh, Lord, we yearn to hear from you in your word. Uh, Lord, we even desire to be uncomfortable this morning because, Lord, we know that when you shine a light in those areas of our lives that, um, Lord, that we have not handed over to you, Lord, there's a discomfort with that. And yet, uh, Lord, we know that we need that. We need to uh, repent. Lord, we need to turn, Lord, areas in our lives over to you. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you'd use your word to shine a light in those areas of our lives, uh, Lord, that we've not surrendered to you. Uh, so, Lord, we're open. We are listening. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all have comfort foods uh, that we go to when we are stressed or bored. I wonder what your comfort food is this morning. I know for me personally, near the top of the list is cereal. I'm on a big cereal kick right now. Anybody else? Will you raise your hand and say, yeah, cereal's what I go to. Maybe a late night snack. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, there's two of us in the room. Um, now, I don't want to start off with anything too controversial. Uh, you never want to do that in the beginning of a, of, of a sermon. But a few years ago, this cereal that was voted one of America's favorites of all time, this shocked me, is actually corn pops. I don't, I don't love corn pops. Uh, that's not, that would not make even my top 10 list, but uh, this is surely a hot take just to begin this morning. But what's interesting about corn pops is that over the last several decades, they have conducted extensive work in the area of rebranding. Here's another fun fact for you. Corn pops actually started out being called sugar pops. All right? Then in 1978, they changed their name uh, to sugar corn pops because of the concern they had with what their name was communicating and the health of the cereal, you know, they were, you know, kind of concerned this is too unhealthy if it's just sugar pops. So they changed it to sugar corn pops. Then eight years later, 1986, they rebranded again. They changed their name to corn pops and strategically dropped uh, the name sugar uh, out from their title. And then 20 years later, 2006, they changed their brand again. They just called it Pops. And that didn't last very long. It lasted only a few months. And then they went back to uh, corn pops. Now, sometimes rebranding is necessary, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes rebranding doesn't do anything at all. See, despite all the changes to their name and the rebranding for corn pops, they didn't make any significant changes to the recipe at all. Changing the name from sugar pops to corn pops was an attempt for them for health-conscious consumers to be more willing to buy their product, even though nothing about the ingredients changed at all. Nothing about the essence, nothing about the substance of the cereal changed, just the name, just the brand, the external appearance changed. But man, it made you feel better about choosing corn pops rather than sugar pops. It's interesting when you think about companies like Corn Pops that go through this rebranding process, it's usually because they've begun asking themselves the question, now what? Where do we go from here? Companies that are looking for perhaps a new direction, they ask that question, now what? Now what is a very important question, not just for companies that are thinking about rebranding, but now what is a very important question for you and for me. Now what, or where do we go from here, is the most important question you can ask yourself after you've fallen into sin. We've all been there. 
you're sitting there after you've sinned and the reality of what you just did hit you. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something you said. Maybe it was a thought that you had, a motive, a plan, a scheme, whatever it is. But the reality of your sin hits you like a ton of bricks. And you start to ask that question, now what? Where do I go from here? Well, we're not alone. 3,000 years ago, book of 1 Samuel chapter 7, God's people are wrestling with that exact question, now what? Where do we go from here? Like all of us, the Israelites had offended God, as we've seen over the last several chapters. They have been unfaithful to the Lord, and they are wrestling with that question, where do we go from here? Now, that question is, it's important for us, not just because we all sin, but it's a very important question because we know there's grace. Like, we, we know that there's forgiveness found in Jesus. The problem is, is, is how do we get that grace? How do we apply God's forgiveness into our situation after we have sinned? In other words, the real question is, what does repentance actually look like? That's really the question underneath the now what question or where do we go from here? What in the world is repentance? And I do wonder if for some of us, our understanding of repentance is more closely aligned with the rebranding strategy of corn pops, where we're, we're more concerned about our brand, about our image, about our external appearance and how it's being perceived by others than actually about changing anything at all about our lives. I wonder if, if some of us are okay with rebranding ourselves, keeping our image intact, our reputation by saying all the right things when we actually don't really want to repent and cut out the sin in our lives at all. Like I'm convinced we need a more powerful picture of repentance, a picture that's far different than the rebranding efforts of Corn Pops. God is calling us to something deeper than rebranding. He's calling us to true life change, life change from the inside out. God is calling us to repentance. That's exactly what we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, a picture of repentance. Now, before we, we dive in, I, I want to provide uh, just some uh, definitions, some descriptions about repentance, maybe even what repentance is not, since we're going to be talking a lot about that today. So just a quick, uh, very um, succinct summary or de definition of repentance. I would describe repentance this way, that it is a, a changing of one's mind that results in changed behavior. All right? Changing of one's mind that results in changed behavior. Or you can, you can think about it as this. It's a turn. It's a 180-degree turn, turning from sin and turning to the Lord in faith. That's why repentance is so necessary in becoming a Christian, kind of your moment of conversion. In fact, there are two things that are going on when you become a Christian. Your moment of conversion, you're experiencing two sides of the same coin, if you will, where one side of the coin is repentance, where you're turning from sin, but the other side of the coin is that you're turning toward the Lord Jesus in faith, and you need both. 
both go together. You can't turn from sin without turning to Jesus. So it's really important in our moment of conversion and justification. But it's not only important to becoming a Christian. It's very central in our process called sanctification of looking more and more like Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, the great leader in the Reformation, said it this way, that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance, that they begin, continue, and end their life here on earth with repentance. Why? Because we're all in process, right? We're all imperfect. We are daily sinners, so we all need to be daily repenters. Now, here's the challenge. We have no problem defining repentance, right? We can come up with these cute definitions of what it is. We can even talk about the importance of repentance, that it's central in our conversion and our sanctification. Here's the challenge, though. The challenge is actually describing and explaining what it looks like in practice. For us to say, ah, that's what repentance looks like. This is what it looks like in my life and actually unpacking that. I think that's a far bigger challenge for us. And the reason why it's such a big challenge is because there is a category uh, called false repentance, a category called pseudo-repentance, or, or what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, worldly grief or worldly sorrow. He says this, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's false repentance and true repentance. Let me give you a couple characteristics of what false repentance looks like. And this is just to kind of aid us as we dive into 1 Samuel 7. Here's some characteristics, false repentance. Number one, blame shifting, right? Blame shifting. This is when there's an absence of taking ownership over your sin. You're, you're making excuses, you're saying, yeah, I sin because that's just, that's just the way I am. That's the way that I was created. Uh, my parents raised me this way. It's their fault. Or I was just tired then. Right? You're blaming other people, blaming the environment that you're in. There's blame shifting. Number two, minimizing sin. Right? You're, you're downplaying the significance of the sin. You might say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Or it didn't hurt anybody right? Or you should see what other people are doing, right? What I'm doing is not, not, not even close to what they're doing, right? You're minimizing it. Another characteristic is a half-truth confession. This is where you come clean, but not fully, right? You just confess the socially acceptable part of the sin, but then you keep hidden the, the aspects of that sin that's most damaging to your reputation or your image. Another one is avoidance of consequences, Right, you confess it, maybe you're starting to turn and change, but you start to negotiate the consequences, negotiate the, maybe the punishment related uh, to the sin. Another big one is that you actually return back to that sin, right? or you replace the sin that you've removed with another sin. Right? You might complete all the steps, but then you just come back to where you started. These are all, I think, false ways to repent. These are all ways that we need to be aware of what worldly grief will produce in our lives. As we begin to understand this picture in 1 Samuel 7 of what repentance, biblical repentance, true repentance, godly grief, what it leads to in the life 
of a believer. So as we jump into chapter 7, it's important to remember uh, that Samuel actually has been absent the last three chapters, which is quite stunning. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, we really haven't seen anything related to Samuel or his ministry. And that's surprising because of all of the momentum leading up to the launch of his ministry at the end of chapter 3. Oh, the focus has actually been the Ark of the Covenants. And we learned last week in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that after seven months of the Ark of the Covenant being in the hands of the Philistines, it's now back in Israelite territory. It was moved to Beth Shemesh, and then it was moved to Kirith Jerim. And it's just lodged there for, for 20 years. It's lodged in this kind of backwaters of Israel, very much forgotten in Kirith Jerim. All right, now, as we move from verse 2 to verse 3, it's important to understand that 20 years have elapsed. 20 years have gone by in between those two verses. And we don't know exactly what was happening uh, during those 20 years. Scholars believe maybe two things were going on. Number one, uh, God's people were falling headfirst into idolatry, which is what we'll see in just a moment. They are turning to other gods over these 20 years. And then secondly, scholars are very certain that Samson is conducting his ministry, that he's dominating the Philistines in other parts of Israel during this time. But 20 years, that's a long time for God to be fairly forgotten, for God's people to be living independently on God. Another observation during this time period as we kind of pivot in the story is that the spotlight is moving off of the Ark of the Covenant and now it's back on Samuel. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant, the last three chapters, appeared 37 different times. Uh, here on out, it's only going to appear one more time in chapter 14. So as the Ark steps off the scene, Samuel steps on. And in verse 3, we see immediately the power and the impact of his ministry. It's front and center. And he begins to call God's people to repentance and by doing so, we see some very clear steps that are involved as we think about what repentance actually looks like. And there's five steps I'm going to point out here as Samuel calls God's people to repentance. Here's number one, really starting in verse two, there is a remorse over sin. Verse two, it says that God's people lamented after the Lord. Again, this is after 20 years. This isn't during the 20-year period, they're constantly lamenting. It's after the 20 years, they begin to lament after the Lord. This word means wailing, means uh, a bitter weeping, right? I think that these are signs of remorse. Remember that verse in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 I just mentioned a minute ago? Paul talks about this godly sorrow or godly grief, godly remorse. I think this is what that's getting at, this is an important step because it demonstrates that you have realized and you're starting to feel the weight of whom you have sinned against and what it costs Jesus to atone for your sin. All, right? all sin, no matter what it is, all sin is ultimately against God, our holy creator. So David proclaims in Psalm 51, he says, against you, have I sinned? And so that informs our understanding of sin and how we talk about sin. Like sin is not just a mistake. It's not just a slip up. 
It's not just a weak moment, right? I think that downplays the significance of sin. No, sin is first and foremost an offense against God. It is, as another theologian describes it, as cosmic treason against our holy creator. And when we understand that, the appropriate response is brokenness. It's a contrite spirit. It is remorse. And I wanna be clear here, you're feeling the weight of it, not because of the consequences you may uh, experience or the punishment or what you might lose, but because of whom you have sinned against. All right, and this is exactly what I think the Israelites are, are demonstrating for us. In fact, if you jump down to verse six briefly, they confess not only their sin, but they recognize their sin is against the Lord, right? That's very important. They're not making excuses. They're not blame shifting or downplaying their sin. They are taking ownership of it and it is visible. Now, again, over the last 20 years here, Samuel, again, he's been preaching throughout Israel. He has been ministering, even as Samson's running around doing his thing. But in verse three, Samuel is specifically addressing I think a key moment in Israel's history, right? For them to start to feel remorse, for them to lament after the Lord is significant. That doesn't happen that often in Israel's history. And so Samuel is really being a good leader right now. He is leaning into that. The reason why he's leaning into that and he's addressing the remorse is because again, there are two different kinds of remorse, Two different kinds of grief. Again, 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's godly grief and then there's worldly grief. So Samuel's leaning into that. He's trying to help them here as we unpack what he says to, to God's people because remorse cannot stand by itself and constitute as repentance. Okay, there's more to it than just this remorse. There's another step. Number two here, it's actually returning to the Lord. That's exactly what Samuel says here in verse three, the beginning of verse three, returning to the Lord with all your hearts. It's important. Just crying over your sin is not repentance. Sobs and tears are not enough for true repentance. Why? Because some of us are great actors, right? Some of us, man, we can put on a show in front of other people, we think we're fooling the Lord. So repentance is not just shedding tears. It is actually returning to the Lord. Remember the essence of that word repentance. It is a turn. The Greek word is metanoia, which means a change or a turn. It's turning from sin and turning to the Lord. Now, why? Why would anybody do that? Or maybe the better question is, is how does that happen? Like, we know that the reason why we fall into sin is because it's pleasurable, right? You get a sense of control when you sin, right? There's a level of enjoyment with sin. So how in the world does anybody give up sin and turn to the Lord? How does that work? Well, it happens when someone is convinced that what they're turning from and what they're turning to is better than that sin that Jesus is actually better than the sin that they've been engaging with, that they're utterly convinced that God's grace is bigger, 
that his mercy is more, that forgiveness is actually available, that's how they begin to turn. The best motivator, the primary motivator, biblically and theologically for repentance is actually the kindness of the Lord. Romans 2, verse 4, it says, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. See, what will lead to repentance in your life, this returning, it's not guilt. It's not shame. It's not trying to please somebody else. It's not trying to avoid consequences. That will not lead you to biblical repentance and this biblical idea of change. It's the kindness of God. It's his compassion. It's his love. It's the the bottomless well of his grace that draws us back into his presence. And look, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. Maybe we all do. I know I need to hear this today. Is that there is no amount of sin and there is no kind of sin that God is unable to forgive. No amount of sin, no kind of sin that can outpower, outdo, outmatch the grace and the mercy of our God. I love 1 John 1, 9. I quote it as many times as I can from the pulpit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what my favorite word is in that, in that verse? The word all. Man, I can preach. All sin. God looks at any sin, all sin, and says, I can forgive that. I can cleanse you from that. God can forgive us of any and all sin. And I wonder, how many of us need to hear that today? Like you maybe know that intellectually, but man, maybe you just need that to be proclaimed over your life right now in this moment, for your heart to be convinced, for you to believe that there is no sin that can outdo the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of our God and the grace that's found in him. And man, our, our enemy's so, so tricky. Like, I wonder, even at this moment, if there's like this specific sin that's creeping into your mind that you've committed that's maybe causing you to doubt that truth right now, if there's this sin that's saying, no, no, not this sin, Chris. This sin is just too much for God to forgive. Look, let me make it abundantly clear. Yes, even that sin, God can forgive. Like if there's a sin that you think is, is too much, too heavy for the Lord to forgive, God can forgive even that sin. You think that sin that's been held in secrecy for all these years, you think God can't forgive that sin? Yes, God can forgive that sin. That sin that you think is too shameful, it's too enslaving, it's too heavy for God to forgive. Yes, even that sin, God can forgive. So look, let, let the kindness of the Lord draw you back to him. Let the kindness of God pull you. Let it woo you back to the Lord. He is so kind. He's gracious He's loving. He has his arms open wide, ready and willing to forgive any and all sin. Take Samuel's counsel. Look at Israel's example and return back to God. Well, Samuel doesn't end there. Yes, remorse is good. 
returning to the Lord with all your heart is good. But, but number three here, again, still in verse three, Samuel calls the Israelites to put away all of their idols and foreign gods. This is interesting. These gods and these idols, they have taken front and center over the last 20 years. And you notice here, he names a couple specific gods. The one I want to uh, just um, uh, identify, Ashtaroth. This god was known uh, to being in charge of all the storms and rain and thunder and lightning. All right, we'll get to that in a moment here. But Ashtaroth was known as the wife of Baal, the mother of Dagon, which we saw a couple weeks ago. It seems like, look, put away all of those gods. Put them away. In other words, he is saying, remove the sin. Remove the sin. This is an important step in the idea of biblical repentance because even though this is probably the most obvious, like as you look at these five in a moment here, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's the one I think about most when I think about repentance. But this includes taking any and all steps necessary no matter how extreme to removing the sin. Like you're, you have this attitude, I will do whatever it takes to get this sin out of my life. That's what biblical repentance looks like. And, and man, I, I just need to call this out for a moment. Like there, there are some of us here where you, you need to stop playing the game. You need to stop trying to convince yourself that you're biblically repenting when all that you've really done is you've shed some tears, you've prayed a prayer, and you've made some empty promises, and you have no intention of removing that sin from your life. And I just need to call, you, you need to stop playing that game. Stop trying to fool yourself or fool other people, trying to fool the Lord, and stop playing that religious game of, man, if I say all the right things, if I do a couple of these actions, then that's, then I'm repenting, when all you've really done is you just rebranded yourself. You've done some things on the surface, but you're not fully surrendering and fully removing that sin. Others of us, you need to stop believing the lie that you've got this, that you can handle the sin that's in your life. You need to stop that right now. That's a lie. You are far more weak, far more frail, far more susceptible in the heat of the moment in temptation than you ever know. And it's not because his grace and power isn't enough, it is. But so often in these moments of temptation, we think, oh, I've got the spirit of God in me, I've got his power, his endless grace, I can flirt a little bit with sin, I'll be okay. I can get as close as I can and I'll be fine. That's, that's not biblical thinking. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted more than, more than your ability. He will give you a way out. Now, the application of that is not, okay, I'm gonna get as close as I can to sin. Ah, he'll take care of me. He's faithful. I got this. Like, he won't put me in this situation that's more than I can handle. No, because the next verse, verse 14, it says, flee idolatry. <laughs> so the way out, like, yeah, God won't give you more than your ability to give you a way out. The way out is to run, is to get as far away from that sin as you possibly can, not as close as you possibly can to it, right? So the application, stop messing around with sin. Stop making it an option in your life. 
by removing it. Like we have to be reminded, like the category, when you think about sin, think about it as a fire. Or you play with fire long enough, you will get burned. You will get burned. Someone said it this way. I don't know who said this, but it's, it's out there. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Some of us know exactly what that means. Don't play around with it. Remove it. Do whatever it takes, no matter how extreme. Okay, so express remorse with confession of sin involved in there, returning to the Lord, removing the sin. But Samuel also tells God's people, again, still verse 3, to replace your sin with God. Replace your sin with God. Notice, he doesn't just tell them to put away the false gods and the false idols. He also says in verse three, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Oh, that's so helpful. He's not just saying, hey, hey, turn away from sin, remove it. But he's also saying, replace the sin with following and serving God. Why? It's because when you and I, when we remove the sin that's in our lives, there's now this void. And what we tend to do is we tend to replace that sin with just another sin that's maybe more socially acceptable. And we don't say that, but that's what we tend to do. And so the call here is to remove the sin, but fill that void with God. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, tells the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols. Okay, so you, you turned away from idols. You turn to God to serve the living and true God. See, the, the replacement, it's not just removing, it's a replacement. I think this is so important. You've heard me say this before. In every human heart, there's a throne. Right, there are probably multiple thrones in there, right? But there is a capital T throne that's reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone, King Jesus, right? Whoever's on that throne, whatever's on that throne, is, is dictating and, and, and informing the decisions that we make, where our affections and desires go, really how we are to live. When we fall into sin, we've removed Jesus from that capital T throne and that sin is there dictating how we live and the decision that we make. Repentance is not just removing that sin from the throne. Repentance is also putting Jesus back where he rightfully belongs. It is replacing that sin with Jesus. Because here's the thing. I don't think it's possible to say no to sin unless we have a stronger yes. I don't think it's possible to just remove sin. You have to replace it with something better. And the only thing that's better, it's more satisfying, more beautiful, more powerful than sin is Jesus Christ. Paul Tripp talks about it this way. We worship our way into sin. We take the baits. And so he's like, man, we have to worship our way out of sin. We, we worship Jesus as we replace the sin with him. And there's something really beautiful that happens. When Jesus is put back on the throne, you start to produce very visible and tangible fruit. Right? And this is important as we think about repentance, what it is, what does it look like? you're gonna see evidence 
in someone's life, this idea of spiritual fruits, good deeds, hunger for the Lord, because Jesus is, is back on the throne of your heart. And this is in line with John the Baptist's message of repentance in Matthew 3, verse 8. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So as you're repenting, you're producing the fruit of following after the Lord. There will be evidence. For the Israelites, it was serving the Lord, right? That's what Samuel is identifying for us. All right, fifthly here, the last step outlined by Samuel at the end of verse three is to receive God's blessing. Receive God's blessing. Samuel talks about uh, as a result of all these steps, you're gonna receive the blessing from God, which for the Israelites was in the form of being delivered from the Philistines. Now, let me be clear. This is not a form of the prosperity gospel where, okay, you just repent from your sin, do what's right, and God's gonna give you what you want. Not saying that at all. What I'm saying is this, this lines up, this aligns with the idea of repenting, turning back to the Lord, you will experience spiritual blessing in your life. Spiritual blessing that's outlined in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where you experience the spiritual blessing of forgiveness. You experience the spiritual blessing of restored joy. You experience the spiritual blessing of intimate communion with the Lord. And this is important as we think about repenting. It's you're being restored back in communion with the Lord. The reason why that's happening is because you have begun to remove the sin that's in your life, creating more space for you to enjoy God again. Enjoy the spiritual blessings that he's made available in and through Jesus, right? But repentance, it's not the cause. It's the condition of receiving God's blessing. It's the condition. In other words, I think that God is, is ready and willing and desires to lavish his people with as many spiritual blessings as possible. Like that is his posture towards us. He's not withholding them. He's wanting to just drench us with spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing. Problem is, sometimes he looks at our lives and he's like, man, there's no room. It's too crowded. There's so much sin in, in this person's life, that person's life. I can't, I can't lavish this blessing or that blessing onto your life. And so repentance is very much a clearing out the sin in your life creating more room and space for God to pour out spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing uh, onto your life. And we, we kind of see something strange happen here in uh, verses five through six. We'll get out of verse three finally. Verses five and six, Samuel leads all the Israelites to Mitzpah and he prays for them. <laughs> but then notice what happens. They draw water and they pour it out before the Lord and they fast. Now, this is so interesting. No scholar, scholars are like, we, don't, we have no idea what's happening here. They, they all basically say that. We have no idea what they're doing, why they're doing it. This isn't found anywhere else in the Bible. It's not found in the law or uh, something that's prescriptive for us, for us to do in the, uh, in the process of repentance. The best guess that scholars believe that's happening here is they're just symbolically demonstrating what's happened in their hearts spiritually. Like the pouring out of water is representing the pouring out of their hearts in repentance before the Lord. And they're, they're fasting, they're, they're just clearing out more space in their lives to receive more of God. All right, but all of this, all of what's happening here is so monumental. Finally, 
this long era of 20 years of being unfaithful to the Lord is done. They return back to God in true repentance. They're finally following God's leader, Samuel, as he's praying, as he's leading, as he's preaching, and as he is judging, right? Now, this takes us to the rematch, though, with the Philistines in verses 7 through 12. And this is so typical, I think, in the Christian life. When you start to repent, you're really starting to get serious with the Lord. There typically is like this opportunity to demonstrate if it's real or not, to demonstrate if it's genuine. Like there's opposition, something from the enemy. I don't know if that happens in your life. I feel like that happens all the time in my life. I'm getting super close with the Lord and like something happens where it's like, okay, you gotta, you gotta really match your talk here and walk it out to make sure that it's genuine. I think that's what's happening here with God's people. Verse seven, notice, they're all gathered at mitzvah, all of them. And so from the Philistines' point of view, it looks as if God's people are gearing up for an attack. And the Philistines are like, no, 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 you're, you're not gonna put us on the defensive. We're gonna attack you first. So the Philistines gear up. They wanna go on the offensive here and God's people, notice verse seven, they are terrified. They are deeply afraid, but notice what they do. Actually, notice what they don't do. They do not turn back to their old gods or their idols. They don't turn to military strategy. They don't turn back to the ark to save them like chapter four. Notice what they do. Verse eight, they tell Samuel, keep praying for us. Keep interceding. Keep crying out to the Lord. Why? because it is the Lord who saves. Wonderful fruit here in the lives of the Israelites. God hears, God responds. Verse 10, notice what happens. Samuel is offering up this burnt offering. The Philistines are closing in and God thundered with a mighty sound, creating confusion for the Philistines. Just try to picture that for a moment. And the Israelites are victorious. So much so that verse 11, verse 14, they recapture all the lost cities and land and towns that they lost in the last couple of chapters. Man, what an amazing turn of events here. God sends a thunder against the Philistines in victory. Why thunder? He could have chosen to do anything to defeat them. Why thunder? Well, if you remember, one of the gods that the Israelites were worshiping, not only Baal, but Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was in charge of thunder, of rain, of lightning. And so God is declaring, no, 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 I am God and there is none like me. I am the powerful one. I am in control of the thunder, of the rain, of everything. And he demonstrates his might here in this moment. You should also recall chapter two, verse 10, Hannah's prayer. Remember, Hannah's prayer is kind of a table of contents for things that we'll experience in 1 Samuel. Verse 10, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. We see that happening right here in chapter seven. Oh, verse 12, Samuel took this stone, large stone, set it up as a memorial of God's faithfulness. He names it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Notice what he declares. He says, till now or thus far, the Lord has helped us. It's a powerful testimony to the Lord's intervening help. <laughs> Notice the great reversal that's happened. Like just compare 
everything that's happened in chapter seven with what happened in chapter four. Chapter four, just 20 years before chapter seven, God's people were encamped in that city called Ebenezer and they experienced one of the worst defeats in their history, 30,000 of them dead. Ark of the Covenant captured. The priests die. They experience the reality of Ichabod. The glory has departed. Chapter four, God was acting in judgment against his unfaithful people. Chapter seven, God is acting in deliverance for his repentant people. And this is amazing. One of my mentors years ago told me that you know someone is experiencing the grace of God when their acts of repentance speak louder than their sin that they fell into. And I think Israel is doing that right here and right now. I love this kind of play on Ebenezer. Ebenezer in chapter four, the location there was equated with failure and despair. Now this stone called Ebenezer is now equated with deliverance and help from the Lord. Samuel declares, till now the Lord has helped us. Now I love the idea of this Ebenezer. Can you imagine? It's like from then on, anybody who walked past that stone, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness. Imagine little children walking by and with their parents, with their dad saying, dad, what's that stone doing there? Why do we call that Ebenezer? And for the father to kind of explain to his children, oh, let me tell you a story about God's faithfulness. Let me tell you about a time in which God intervened and helped us and was faithful to us. And son, because he was faithful then, he will be faithful now and he will be faithful tomorrow. It's so important for us to have our own Ebenezer moments when you're in temptation, when you're overwhelmed with life, to recall the faithfulness of God, those tangible Ebenezer moments in which God has been a help to you in order to propel you forward in obedience. That till now or up to this point, so powerful, that till now gives us confidence for the future. That no matter how unknown the future is, no matter how unlit it is, we can trust in God because of what he's done for us in the past. Well, it takes us to the end of the chapter here. We see victory and peace in verses 13 through 17. While Samuel was in leadership, Israel's able to recapture their lost cities and territory. Samuel is strengthening God's people, and there is peace. Now, as I close, you, you probably noticed that I skipped over verse 9, skipped over this burnt offering that Samuel made on behalf of God's people. He took that lamb and made it as a sacrifice for the, for the people of the Lord. And look, we, we rightly ask the question, where do we see Jesus in this passage? Right? We, we rightly ask the question, how do we make sense of this chapter in light of the whole story of the Bible? Well, the way that we do that is we understand verse nine as a pointer to the cross. Like verse nine, this sacrifice lamb that Samuel makes is just a symbol. It is a shadow for us pointing forward to the reality of the cross of Calvary, where 2,000 years ago, there wasn't this animal lamb that was dying for us. It was the son of God. 
It was the lamb of God, the perfect Lord Jesus, who got up on a cross, he bled and he died in order to pay for our sins. That Jesus hung there and he experienced the judgment of God so that you and I could experience God's acceptance and forgiveness. And as Jesus hung there, he paid for every last one of our sins, paid in full. It's only through Jesus that repentance is possible. It's only through Jesus that peace with God is available. It's only through Jesus that salvation can be realized when you place your faith upon him. It's only through Jesus where we go from experiencing Ichabod, the glory has departed, to now we get to experience the reality of Ebenezer. God is my help, he is my deliverer, and he is my savior. 1 Samuel 7, what a climactic moment in the story of Israel in this book. It is a high point. And I do wonder, for, for those who are here today, and you would say that you are trapped in sin, you are enslaved to sin, I, I wonder if today, March 19th, 2023, I wonder if today could be a climactic moment for you. I wonder if today could be the high point of your entire life, where you draw a line in the sand and you say no more. No more living in sin, no more being enslaved to this sin, that today is the day that you experience freedom, true freedom, true repentance, and say, I'm done with this sin. Could today be the day of your Ebenezer, where you say, March 19, 2023, this was the day God was my help and he freed me. That's what we're praying. That's why we wanna create some space here in the next couple of moments for you to have some time with the Lord to be able to respond to that. I know we all have sin in our life we need to repent from, we need to turn from. And we just wanna give you a couple of minutes here before we, we sing this last song. And I really want you to spend time reflecting on these two questions here. Question one, is what area or habit of your life does God look at and he says, that's not mine yet. And it's not because God's not Lord and sovereign over everything. It's not because he doesn't own everything. It's because you haven't surrendered, whatever that is. Maybe it's your kids or your money, what you look at on the internet, how you spend your time, your words, whatever it is. What do you need to, to surrender and repent of in your life? And then question two is, which of these steps outlined here as Samuel is calling God's people to repent, do you need to, to apply right now in this moment to repent before the Lord? Let me pray for our time to do that right now before we sing. God, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would move freely in this room, that you would set people free, or that you would break chains, that you would tear down walls, and Lord, that your kindness would be on display. God, would you woo people right now? Would you convince hearts that you are better and that we would repent in response to that? We pray, Jesus' name, amen.